Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And there are really two reasons why I ask you to turn to this particular passage this morning. The first is, a couple of weeks ago, there was a book recommended to me to read. I was greatly encouraged to read it by a pastor friend of mine. And I have begun it and am making good progress through it. And there is one chapter that deals extensively with particularly verse 28 and 29. The second reason is because it's my hope, Lord willing, beginning next week to preach the seven sayings of Jesus in John's gospel, the I am sayings, where Jesus declares who he is and what he has done for our salvation. And I hope that this sermon will serve as an introduction of sorts to those seven great statements of Jesus. But more than just an introduction, in this passage, there is that which will feed the hungriest sheep. So if you're here this morning, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the Lord has directed us to a feast of truth. But there's also that in this passage, which the Lord, if he so chooses and if it pleases him, will use to awaken others to their need of a gentle and lowly shepherd. This is unique, what we'll read this morning. It speaks of who Jesus is, not what he's done. Now, it is right of us to spend a great deal of time studying concerning what Jesus has done. We can study the miracles. We can study redemption. We can study his cross work. We can study countless things to our great benefit, to the edification of our own soul, to the building up of the people of God. But this passage and a handful of others really helps us to understand who Jesus is. What is he like? Jesus speaks of his own heart in these verses. And in that, it's very unique in Scripture. We understand that when the Bible talks about the heart of man, it talks about the seat of his emotion. Who he or she is in the the innermost recess of your own soul. And so Jesus is telling us what his heart is like in these verses. I want to do just a little bit of work to catch us up to Matthew chapter 11. Because like all of the word of God, I think placement is inspired of the spirit. This, this is here in Matthew 11 for a reason. It's not in Matthew 6 or Matthew 22 I just picked those at random. It's here for a very specific reason. It's like the last few chapters are building to this declaration of Jesus of what his heart is like towards sinners. So to bring us up to speed in the context of Matthew, I'm going to quickly run through chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. After Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, Chapter 8 records several miracles of healing. Jesus heals a leper. 
He heals a centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. The scripture says many demon-possessed were brought to him and Jesus healed them all. You'll remember that Jesus calmed the sea. He spoke a word to his creation and in an instant the raging sea became a sea of glass. Dead calm. Jesus healed a paralytic. He also, in chapter 8, called Matthew, the author of this gospel, to follow him. He raised a ruler's daughter from the dead. He restored the sight of two blind men. He restored a mute, his ability to speak. Matthew seems to sum all of this up in the 35th verse of chapter 9 when he says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Moving on from there, Jesus called laborers into the harvest. He sends out the twelve apostles and he warns them, concerning the persecution that they would suffer. And he instructs them in how to carry out the ministry that he is sending them on. That very quickly brings us up to the beginning of chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, imprisoned because of his boldness and courage in calling out the relationship that should not be between Herod and his brother's wife. John sends two of his disciples to Jesus and asks him, are you the coming one or should we look for someone else? I don't think John was confused. I don't think John doubted. I think John wanted these two disciples to know for sure that this was the coming one. John knew his time was short. He wanted others to know that this Christ was who he said he was. Jesus answers these two disciples by recounting for them many of the miracles that were recorded in chapters 8 and 9. Jesus says, you go and tell John the things which you hear and you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised... The poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus then pronounces his rebuke upon this generation for their dullness of hearing. He compares them to children sitting in the marketplace calling to their companions saying, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We mourned and you did not lament. And then in some of the strongest language recorded coming out of our Savior's mouth, he pronounces woes upon the cities that these miracles were performed in. And he says to them, woe is you because... If I had performed these works in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time ago in dust and ashes. But the hardness of your hearts has kept you from doing this. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. 
And that brings us all the way up to verse 25, where I want to begin reading. And it was at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Charles Spurgeon said, Introducing his commentary to this text, he said, my soul, there are indeed great mysteries here. Enjoy what you cannot explain. And that's what we're called to do this morning. We're to realize that there is great treasure of truth contained in these few verses. And while we cannot fully explain them, the inner workings of the Trinity that are found in this passage, which is not my main focus this morning, but I'm going to read them again later. The inner workings of the Trinity are astounding. How the Father and the Son, their knowledge of one another, and how they make each other known to men. Jesus going so far as to say that He wills to make known to men. The first thing that I want to do is just is pause and pray, of course, and then we're going to look at what Jesus says about the Lord of heaven and earth. So would you pray with me? Father, we come. Lord, we're slow of understanding. Far too often we are like these children that you spoke of, for whom the music is played, but we dance not. Father, help us to be those who hear. Would you, of your own good pleasure, give us ears to hear this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The first point I want you to see is what Jesus says concerning the Lord of heaven and earth. And let there be no confusion here. The scriptures speak plainly. What Jesus says concerning his Father in heaven is not shrouded in mystery. It is declared very openly for our submission to it and our understanding of what the Father is doing in heaven. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. What's he doing there? The verse tells us. Our God is in the heavens, and He is doing whatever He pleases. God is unique in that sense. Only He can really, truly, effectively do what 
whenever he pleases. You and I oftentimes think that we can do that, but we really can't. We're limited by any number of things. We're limited by ability. We're limited by health. We're limited by resources. We're limited by understanding. So many things limit what we can do. But it's refreshing to me, and I hope to you as well, to consider that our Father in heaven is limited by nothing. There is nothing that can stay His hand. His right hand has not been shortened. His right arm has not been shortened. And in the Old Testament Psalms and other places, when the right arm of God is brought forward, it's referring to His strength, His ability. The God who created in the book of Genesis chapter 1 merely by speaking a word is the God that we are reading of here in the 25th verse of Matthew 11. And notice that Jesus says that the Father is to be thanked for His sovereign handling of, quote, these things. Let me read the verse again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. These truths concerning the kingdom of God is what Jesus is referring to in these things. The miracles that were recorded in chapters 8 and 9. The preaching of Jesus up to this point the knowledge of salvation, the very things that John the Baptist understood while he was awaiting his, while he was awaiting his death are the things that Jesus is speaking of here. All things that pertain to the kingdom of God. And notice what Jesus says concerning his father that he has hidden these things from the wise and prudent. He has concealed and shrouded in mystery these very things. I think we should take the wise and prudent and understand them to be the self-righteous, those with a Pharisee-type mind who are seeking to establish their own righteousness before God. From people such as that, God the Father in His wisdom has concealed these things. But to those who are considered babes, to those who like little children come to Jesus in great humility, Jesus says of the Father, it has pleased you to reveal them to babes. This seemed good in the sight of God. Verse 26 says, so even so, Father... For so it seemed good in your sight. Very often in Scripture, particularly in a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, we read that the Father does things according to the good pleasure of His own will. And very often, mankind kicks against such revelation. Claims of unfairness even saying absurdly that this goes against the very nature of God. Well, let me remind you, we are being told what the nature of God is in this 
verse. Not only the nature of God, but what pleases Him. And here we have to stop short. There is a principle that we do well to heed when we run into places like this in Scripture. We don't go where the Scripture doesn't go. We go as far as it takes us and then we stop. Sometimes we have to check reason at the door. Sometimes we have to check lots of stuff at the door and just proceed in faith. Realizing that this is indeed the word of God and he has made it known for our good. As being creatures made of God, very often we bow humbly before what he makes known. Isn't this what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, that fearful passage, Romans chapter 9, that has caused consternation amongst many. Admittedly, many of us read that chapter and scratch our heads, but yet it is part of the revealed word of God. Let me read you a couple of verses from Romans 9. I think it goes right along with what Jesus says. I'm not saying this. Jesus said this. Father, Lord of heaven, I thank you that you have hidden these things and that you have revealed them to others. Paul says in Romans 9, 14, what shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The scripture indeed says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. You say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? It is a good measure of our preaching of the gospel if these very thoughts aren't excited in the people that we preach to, then very often the message that we preach may not equate to the biblical gospel at all. Something different. Paul anticipated, as he did so often, a natural human response to the grace of God. Romans 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Same language here. Is there any unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And so back to Matthew 11, Jesus is thanking his Father for this sovereign working of his in concealment and revelation. And then he also gives us some mysterious workings of the Trinity. And he basically says, the Father delivers all things to the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
This is what made Spurgeon take a step back and say, my soul, there's great mystery here. And we do the same. But so far, all of this has been introduction to what Jesus will say in verse 28. I want to pause here for just a moment and I want you to consider the greatest invitation that you have ever received. In your mind right now, what is it? What is the greatest invitation you have ever received or would ever hope to receive? Perhaps you can get in mind your favorite United States president, whoever that is, from history, doesn't matter. If you were to receive an invitation from that man to come to the White House, would you consider that to be the greatest invitation that you have ever received? Maybe it's some other great historical person that you highly esteem, that you have learned from their example. Perhaps you have received invitations to things like weddings. We sent out so many invitations to Shelby and Steve's wedding. Perhaps you've received an invitation to come to some kind of an event, some kind of a, a party. And you highly esteemed it. And you considered it to be a a great invitation. But what we're reminded of here in the 28th verse is the greatest invitation ever extended to you and to me is from the Savior of the world to all who are weary and are heavy laden. Put your eyes on the page again, verse 28. I want you to see it. If you have a Bible open in front of you or or some kind of electronic device with the scriptures on it, look at verse 28 where Jesus says, come to me. Consider with me the greatness of this invitation. The greatness of the invitation is expressed really in the first word, come. We did a little bit of work at the beginning of this to remind ourselves of everything that Jesus has done leading up to this point. The one who healed disease. The one who raised the dead. The one who calmed the sea. He says now, come to me. the greatest invitation ever. We've already read these verses, but we'll allude to them again. How foolish would it be to be like the children mentioned in the eight, or excuse me, the 16th verse of this chapter. What shall I like in this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you, but you would not dance. Mourned to you, and you did not lament. I want to say reverently this morning that this invitation to come to Jesus is holy music being played for you to dance to. Will you dance?
Will you come? This is Jesus Christ, the God man. The savior of the world, the one who bore our sins on the tree. He is saying, come to me. Notice to whom this invitation is extended. All who labor and are heavy laden. And let me just say right here. If you come to Jesus, whoever you are, he will not turn you away. I realize there's great mystery here in the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man at play. But I can say with all certainty, if you will come to Jesus, he will receive you unto himself. If you come on his terms, as detailed and outlined in the scripture, he will receive you unto himself. But you must come on his terms. You can't come with a heart full of pride. You can't come in arrogance, exalting yourself. You can't come in doubt. You must come in faith. He says, come to me all you who labor. Some of your translations say who are weary and are heavy laden. I want to talk about these two words for just a moment. They're different. Both of them expressing Great truth. The first, labor or weary, refers to working to the point of exhaustion. You've probably been there at some point in your life, physically exhausted. Having done whatever it is that you do, just to the point of not being able to go any further. Exhausted, But this is not speaking of physical exhaustion. Jesus is not saying, come to me if you're physically tired. This is a spiritual exhaustion. Is it any wonder why in the beginning on the Sermon on the Mount, the first of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is referring here to those who are spiritually exhausted from trying to work out their own salvation. And I might remind you that the scriptures say that the Pharisees and the Jews and the councils, the Sanhedrin, laid a heavy yoke upon those that they taught. Acts chapter 15 alludes to that yoke of heaviness. It's because they preached legalism and said you must do this, 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 in addition to these other things if you want to come to Christ. And in so doing, they were placing a heavy yoke of bondage upon the people and it was a wearying bondage, spiritually exhausting to wake up every day and have to again work out your own salvation. Work for your own salvation. Striving to please God through works or any other worldly means is spiritually exhausting. There's no end to it. 
You must continue to do it over and over and over again. And in all of that repetition, it never equates to anything before God. It's all emptiness. It's all vanity. It's all rejected of Him. All that He wants from you for your salvation is faith in His Son. And the work that He accomplished. But Jesus uses another word. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And it seems to be that there are many who labor. And in that laboring spiritually, there comes a time when it is like a new, fresh, larger burden is placed upon your back. And now you become heavy laden, not just spiritually exhausted but spiritually exhausted exponentially. Those of you who have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, this is the weight and the burden of sin that was placed upon his back. I love the children's illustrated version of that book that we have at home. It shows this little man, stick figure guy named Christian with a world of a burden upon his back. He is bent and bowed over under its weight. And he is looking at every turn for some way to release this burden from his back. But it's not until he meets evangelist on the road where he learns how to cast this burden off. If you've never read the Pilgrim's Progress, you're depriving yourself of a tremendous blessing. There are updated versions where you don't have to wade through the old English if that's what's slowed you down in years past. But John Bunyan has written a treasure. And you probably know that next to the scriptures, the, the, the word of God, it's the second best-selling book of all time for good reason. So heavy laden refers to perhaps even an external burden that is brought on by the weariness first mentioned. By any account, by the time we reach the end of the 28th verse, those who labor and are heavy laden have completely come to the end of themselves. There is a realization that there is nothing that they can do to alleviate this burden. And yet here stands the invitation of Jesus to such a person, come to me, come to me. Notice what Jesus says, please see it. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. What's the next three words? And I will. I will. This is the promise of Jesus extended to any that will come on these terms. Jesus doesn't say, I might. He doesn't say, perhaps. He says, I will. So know this. Jesus is willing. Are you? That's the question. Don't wonder, is Jesus willing? He is. What is he willing to do? He says, I will give you Rest. Rest here referencing the peace of God 
that comes through Christ. And also the peace with God. The depiction of rest is throughout the scriptures, most notably perhaps in, a, in Hebrews chapter 4, where we are reminded that the worship and the rest of the Lord's people on the Lord's day is just a little bit of a foretaste of the rest that will be ours fully throughout eternity. William Hendrickson says of this rest, he says, the rest here spoken of is not only negatively the absence of fear, anxiety, and despair. It is that. He says, it is also positively peace of mind and heart and assurance of salvation. This is knowing that the burden of sin that is on your back, that has spiritually exhausted you, can be removed. This is an invitation to come and have Jesus, through the work that he accomplished on the cross, cut the rope that binds that sin to your back and to mine. He will give you rest, the burden will be lifted. The heavy ladenness will be gone. That's the first part of this invitation. There is a second part, and it's found in verse 29. Coming to Christ is the first aspect of this. The second is to walk in obedience. Verse 29 says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The word learn here is where we get our word disciple in the sense of a learner. Take my yoke upon you. To be yoked to Jesus. Can you imagine a better life? <laughs> Living in this world full of sin. To be yoked to the Son of God by faith. So that He is carrying or has carried the weight of your burden. He has removed your burden of sin. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now here's the, the tremendous part of this verse. Jesus tells us, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Whatever preconceived ideas that we've had concerning Jesus and his interaction with us, some of us, myself included, probably have suffered in times past from a, a view of Jesus as being a stern, harsh taskmaster from being so holy that he will not countenance our sin at all but what does this verse say come to me with your sin I'll give you rest take my yoke upon you learn from me 
for I am gentle, meek, meek, and lowly in heart. This is, the, this is the Jesus of the Scripture, the God-man who is even now at the Father's right hand, interceding on my behalf and on the behalf of all of His saints. Gentle and lowly in heart. Meek and mild. Not turning us away. And notice what He says concerning the end of this invitation. Notice the transaction that takes place. You will find rest. I want you to see this. Jesus first said, I will give you rest. And then he says, once you've come to me, you will find rest. So we have to get the relationship right. Jesus gives, we find. But we can take that a step further. We only find because He's shown us the way. We only find because He's opened the door, because He is the gate, because He is the way, truth, and the life. You will find rest for your Souls. There's no reason to live a spiritually exhausted life trying to prove yourself to God. You'll never succeed. Rest for your soul is the greatest of treasures that Christ offers. This is an eternal rest. This is to no longer be agitated by some system that has taught or is teaching you to work work for your salvation, to keep the law of God so that you will be saved. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. It's as if Jesus is saying, my yoke is no yoke at all. And my burden is no burden at all. The book that I told you that I've been encouraged to read, there was a sentence in it that struck me and I want to share it with you concerning this rest. And the quote is this. Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm of life, outstrips even your own desire to find rest. I don't know if that sank in or not, but let it sink. Jesus' desire for you to find rest outweighs your own desire for you to find rest. Jesus wants you to come to Him To find rest for your soul. He greatly desires it. He bled. He died. Was buried. Was raised to life. So that you and I could find rest for our souls in Him.
this all naturally leads us, I think, to one question. It's the assumed and implied question. Will you come? Will you come to him? Will you come in faith, believing that he will give you rest for your soul? That he will remove your burden and all of that spiritual exhaustion and agitation will be gone and you can rest in his finished work. Saying at every temptation and wile of the devil that you are looking to Christ. I love the line of the old hymn that we sing from time to time. When Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. That's the attitude of a Christian. That's the attitude of rest. To know that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. To know that he has extended this greatest invitation what will you do with it? My encouragement to you, my pleading with you is to come to Jesus. You know, we hear people often humorously speak about a come to Jesus meeting. Well, this is the come to Jesus meeting that you must have if you will be saved. I want you to hear again the gentle and lowly Savior saying to your soul, come. I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have recorded in the Scripture this knowledge concerning your Son and our Savior. How prone we would be to wrong thoughts of Him if we weren't told so plainly and so clearly that He is gentle and lowly in heart. That He receives sinners. That He extends the invitation to come. This same powerful Jesus who raised the dead healed disease, calmed a raging sea, gently and lowly in heart, has accomplished our salvation. Father, we pray that even as we read in the beginning of this paragraph, that that work which seems good in your sight, that you would accomplish it even here today. Father, let not one escape. Let not one run away from your goodness and your mercy again. Father, would you, with cords of love, bind them unto yourself, draw them in. Show them the truth concerning Jesus. The truth concerning their sin and the wage that it pays.
Would you give them rest for their soul as they come to Christ in faith? We ask it so that you might receive the honor, so that you might receive the glory, and so that there would be another voice of the redeemed added to the choir of those that sing your praises. We ultimately ask it in the name of our gentle and lowly Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.